the powerful part for us this morning is there is only one church. Um, and I want to say this morning, because some of the words we've sung, we, we might hear something in that, but what I want to say this morning, don't miss this, because if you wonder what, where is this temple that we sing of, this place where God's spirit dwells, it's you. It's me. The very presence of God is in us. This is the way God works in the world. And so as we gather in spaces, they're holy by our very presence because wherever we go, God's Spirit is already there. There is no place we go that God is not present. And so in this time together, as you stand by people that you don't really know, or maybe you know really well, we pray with me as we go to the Lord and we ask that not only would we sense his presence here, but he would send us out to be his unique people in the world. Father, we come before you today thankful that in the midst of all that's going on around us, that you are faithful. That you're present with us in such a way that it matters, that it, that it changes our life to the very cornerstone of who we are as your son. Not only did Jesus come and live and die so that we could find life eternally, but so we could find life here and now. And the promise is this, that your spirit, the very presence of God that raised Jesus from the dead, can be a part of our everyday life. So Father, we pray in these moments that you would help us as we are some filled with great excitement, some not sure what they're thinking, others afraid or even angry. But help our hearts, each one of us, to be centered in your love. Because if we're centered in your love, then we respond from places of living and hope and joy. And sometimes I'm as guilty as any of us that, that our own, own stuff gets in the way of that. And so, Father, help us to live out of love. We do pray today for those who've gathered in this space, those who cannot make it here right now. We know many who are battling illness. We know we turn on the news and it doesn't take much watching to hear about brokenness all around us. But part of why we gather, part of what brings us to these places together is this, that we believe in a God who goes into the brokenness and repairs and restores and makes all things new. And so, Father, will you help us to be your hands and feet in your restoration in this world? For us to know we do not do it alone, that our actions alone are not enough, but there is something about the power of God's Spirit speaking in and through our lives. And so, Father, even if we're here today and we're not even sure about what we believe, may we, may we maybe be open to the idea that there might be really a divine creator of all who desperately loves us, as we've sung, who has a reckless love for you and I. So, Father, this morning, may we not only believe in a God who has reckless love, may we embrace that love and may we give that love out of a place of overflowing in us that it's, it's like a cup that just keeps flowing out, but, but it's you that has to fill us, Father. And so will you do that today? And, Father, we pray that you would help us to be your unique people in this world, part of your one church. We pray all this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
it's good to, to see you all, or most of you all, and it's, um, it's, fun to, it's fun to hear stories and have conversations. It's fun to be a part of listening to, to the life of others here. But I was thinking this week, um, do you ever hear stories of incredible things that people are a part of and you go, man, I could never do that. You know, like kind of incredible things that people have done, and you go, I just don't know that I could do that. I mean, that sounds like it's beyond me. Or maybe you respond in this way, someday I'm going to do something like that. Someday I'll, I'll, I will do that. Or maybe you say, I, I wish I could be a part of that. I've got to be honest, I, I've probably responded in all three ways. In fact, I, I hear people doing incredible things, like when people climb mountains, I think to myself, I, I could do that. And then I think about the couple realities. Like one, like you got to pay to get to those mountains and they're usually way away from here. So that, that's kind of a hindrance. Then I think about the fact that I'm actually afraid of heights. Um, and that becomes an even bigger hindrance. Like, well, you know, like, but if there are trails, I can do that. Because, you know, I, I have some control over that. But if it's like open rock climbing, like that just sounds like a bad idea. If they were designed to be climbed, there would be footholds and handholds already. Not, you wouldn't have to make them. It's just a bad call. But I've heard about incredible stories where people start stuff or do things that you're just going, man, that, that's just really incredible. Like, here's what I mean. So, so you've heard of Apple and Microsoft and Google, right? You've heard of those three. I, if you haven't, I don't know where you live. Um, <laughs> not in this world. They're everywhere, right? I mean, it, but did you know there's one thing all three have in common besides their technology companies? They all started in garages. It's kind of interesting, right? A garage is not a place we often think of. Like, garages are hot and sometimes smell. I mean, like, but, but those three companies started in garages. You've maybe heard of the brand Under Armour, Kevin Plank, the CEO and founder of the company. They started in his trunk. He was, said he was the sweatiest guy on his college football team at the University of Maryland, decided he was going to find a way to, to give clothing to athletes that wasn't that was better than cotton t-shirts. And so he just played with this material and basically uses whatever little money he saved up as a college student and put it to use, started a company, Under Armour, out of his trunk. You've heard of Nike. Maybe you've heard of their founder, Bill Bowerman, who was a track guy at the University of Oregon. And maybe what you didn't know is he started, they sold their stuff, their shoes out of trunks as well. But they also, he started making the soles of his tennis shoes with his wife's waffle iron. Right, like maybe you're like me and you're thinking, huh, I wonder what in my house, I, I think in my head, what could I use in our kitchen to make lots of money now? Um, <laughs> and the truth is, we don't cook that much, <laughs> are we, with microwave? Um, so I, I don't think I can do anything with that. So, so I began thinking, I, I'm not sure I could do any of those things. I'm not technologically advanced for Microsoft or Apple or Google. You know, I'm not creative enough with clothing or with shoes. You know, I, I don't know about that. But then I heard about a guy named Scott Harrison. And maybe you've heard of Scott Harrison. Scott, Scott's kind of like one of my, um, the latter part of life, Scott's life is one of my hero kind of things. But the first part, not so much. Scott grew up in a Christian home. And Scott, Scott ran from that at 18. Ran to New York City and eventually became a, a club promoter. And he was paid to drink certain brands of alcohol. I mean, I mean he was... He was living the kind of life that everyone thinks they might want to live. And, and as Scott's doing that, he ends up going on vacation to Uruguay, to the beaches of Uruguay. 
And there on the beach in Uruguay, he's reading A.W. Tozer by day and partying by night. And he realizes in the middle of this, like, these two things cannot go together. My drug use and my theology, they don't work. And he has this crisis of faith there in Uruguay. And he comes back and he quits pruning clubs and he decides to dedicate the next year of his life. And he ends up volunteering with Mercy Ship. He tried, like, Compassion International and all kinds of other groups. But, but you know, alcohol consumer, drug user, party goer didn't really work on his resumes. Um, so he took a volunteer job as a photographer for Mercy Ship. He ends up on the ship traveling and he ends up in Africa and he sees how so much of the world is dying because they don't have clean drinking water. He starts this nonprofit called Charity Water on his next birthday. He, he has people bring, I think he's turning 30, he has people bring $30, raise enough money to build two wells. And he said, if this is what we could do to save the world, he, he began then to to dedicate his life. Um, he's founded a charity called Charity, um, charity Water. And in that charity, they've raised over $100 million. And they're digging wells around the world. And our goal is to, um, to have at least 1 billion people have clean drinking water by the year 2020. It, it's a pretty incredible story. But what all these stories have in common, from Apple and Google and Microsoft, to Under Armour and Nike, to Charity Water, is they all started with someone taking a risk, someone dreaming a dream, truthfully in all of the stories in a way that doesn't really make sense. But the truth is we kind of see this story play out all throughout the Bible. I mean, this really is the story of the Bible. You see people taking risks that don't make any sense. I mean, it's what happens all throughout the scriptures if you read it. I mean, that's what you see everywhere. It's the story of Abraham, it's the story of Moses, Today we're going to be looking at the story of Joshua from Joshua chapter 3. I'll give you a minute to turn there. I'll, I'll reference a couple other things before I get there. But, but it's a story of this kind of radical faithfulness of people that's willing to step out in a risk, willing to take adventure, willing to do something that doesn't make sense logically, and yet in the middle of that, God does something miraculous. So the story of Abraham is this call that God comes to him and says, hey, I, I want to make you great. I want to make your people great. I want to make you a blessing to the world. That's, that's important. We'll come back to that. I want to make you a blessing to the world. And so off Abraham goes, and time fast forward, and then there's Isaac and Jacob, and then there's the sons, and Joseph ends up in Egypt, and you've, maybe you've seen the play or watched the movie, I, I don't know, and, and so there's slaves in Egypt. And in the middle of that, then, then they cry out to God, this people, Abraham's people, they cry out and say, God, are you going to save us or not? And they send Moses, and Moses comes. And Moses leads the people out of Egypt. He leads them away from slavery. He frees them from oppression. In the middle of that, then, then they begin to recognize who God is, that he redeems them from places of brokenness. But it doesn't take long in that story. They're in the wilderness quickly. And in the wilderness, they get to the place where the promised land is supposed to be. And they're afraid. In fact, I'm just going to read a couple verses from Numbers chapter 13. This is what this group of 12 who went to check out the city comes back to tell Moses. We went into the land to which you sent us. It does flow with milk and honey. Here's its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. So they're scared. Then Caleb says this, jumping ahead. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But 
But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. And then on this line to end this section. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And we looked the same to them. What could have been? If you know the story, you know they spent 40 more years in the wilderness. I mean, God fed them. They, had, they were taken care of. But, but what could have been? What could have been in this story? What would have happened if they had gone and, and the 12, if they had gone with Caleb and Joshua and said, yeah, I know you, you don't see this, but what, what if we just take this step? What if we go forward? And then we see in the book of Joshua, Joshua 1.9 says this, Have I not commanded you? It's the Lord speaking. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Joshua becomes the new leader and he's leading them in a new way. And this becomes such a powerful moment. And so we're going to read uh, from Joshua chapter 3 together. Will you stand as we read uh, Joshua chapter 3? We'll be, reading, we'll be jumping around just a little bit. So I want to, um, Joshua 3, 1 through 5 says this. Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan, where they camped before crossing over. After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the Ark. Do not go near it. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. I'll read that verse again. Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Verse 6, Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on ahead of the people. So they took it up and went ahead of them. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan, Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Jumping to verse 14. So when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Yet as soon as the priests who carried the Ark reached the Jordan and their feet touched the water's edge, the water from upstream stopped flowing. It piled up in a heap a great distance away at a town called Adam in the vicinity of Zarethan. While the water flowing down to the Sea of or Arabah, the salt sea, was completely cut off. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan, while all Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. Skipping over chapter 4, verse 15. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests carrying the Ark of the Testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan, and the priests came up out of the river, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. No sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran at flood stage as before. The word of the Lord. You may be seated.
Like, I don't know if you caught this, but this is a pretty incredible story. I mean, if you've ever shown up to a river at flood stage, you know that it flows even quicker than normal. And so, so the people show up to the Jordan River and they get to the water's edge. And God has said, if you will just step your foot into the water, if the priests who are carrying the ark will take that one step forward, I will do something incredible among you. So make sure you prepare your hearts in advance because I want to do something that you never dreamed possible. It took a step of faith. And when they took that step of faith, the water stopped. And the people crossed over on dry land. And it became a story that they passed on from generation to generation. The story we're talking about thousands of years later, this is a story that literally changed the people. It took them from from really wandering the wilderness where God did take care of them, but it took them to a promised land that he had for them that was flowing with milk and honey, a place they never dreamed of, that they never planned for. This is what God did. Now, I've got to be honest, I would love to tell you that this story has been ringing in my ears for months because God had just done some great thing in my heart and, and had been there, but what I have to be honest about is say this, that the truth is this story has been ringing in my ears for months because a couple of our board members, as we have been prayerfully considering the future, have been sharing this story as it's come up in their devotional life and talked about it over and over again to the point that I'm now living with this story as I think it's a story for us. I would love to tell you that the story continued and the nation of Israel crossed into the the promised land and then they lived so awesomely that they never screwed up again, but we know that's not true. That isn't the story. They begin to long for a king and so they get a king and the kings screw up and, and they become exiles again. See, somewhere they forgot when they went into the promised land, what what was the call of them as to be God's unique people in the beginning? It was the call of Abraham to be a blessing to the world. And it wasn't too long into the nation's history in the promised land that they began to look like all the other empires before them. They looked a lot like Egypt. Kings and slaves and chariots and horses and armies. Kind of the opposite of what God told them to do. They looked like the people they had left. See, I, I think that there's a line I'm, I have heard recently that I've I been kind of wrestling with. Um, I've always thought the goal of faith was just faithfulness. Um, And there's some truth to faithfulness is really good. But the goal of faithfulness is not just faithfulness. The goal of faithfulness is fruitfulness. So here's what I mean. Um, I used to think like that we, and I I get we we did this in all the right ways and and, and wrong ways at the same time. Um, We've often made like the pinnacle of Christian faith, which is why I think we've lost a, we have almost lost a generation to the church because we made the pinnacle of the Christian faith. Uh, go to church, sit in your seat, pay your tithe, and go to Sunday school. Can I tell you those are really good things, by the way? Those are really good. They're faithful. But if we don't allow God to do a work in us, they're not fruitful. And can I tell you that's hard to hear? My dad and I have been wrestling over this conversation. He and I have been having it, and I've been pushing him a little bit. I said, Dad, he doesn't like his job a lot. And I said, you have such a unique opportunity. So you don't understand. You like what you do. I was like, well, sometimes. Sometimes they like me too, but when they don't, I don't like it either. Like, like, it's 
true. I read your emails. No, um. But I said to my dad, I said, Dad, you have such a unique opportunity to love people who don't know Jesus and who don't know what love looks like. And he's like, well, yeah, but it's hard. He said, I know. But the reason you're faithful on a Sunday is so that you can be fruitful on a Monday. See, can I just tell you today that, that faithfulness says, if we could fill every seat, that's great. And we're pretty close right now. I mean, there's only there's a handful. I bet we could fit another 25, 30 people in here, maybe. That's about it. I mean, if we brought the kids back, about, we could fit about five people. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's good. That's faithful. But I think God calls us to fruitfulness. And fruitfulness says this, that until all of West Michigan knows Jesus, we're not done. In fact, it would say not only did until all of West Michigan, but it would say if all of West Michigan does, then all of Michigan. And if all of Michigan, then all of America. And if all of America, then all of the world. Because ultimately, until everyone knows Jesus, we aren't done. He calls us and invites us to invite others to a different way of life. A way of life surrounded by God's unique love. A way of life that... It says here's the reality of what true love looks like. It is deep, it is abiding, it is sacrificial, it is selfless. It says others first. But to live out of that kind of love is so hard. It takes a fresh perspective today. So I've been thinking about um, a phrase I heard a few years ago. It's called post-Christian. Maybe you've heard this phrase. Uh, so here's what I mean by when I say post-Christian. So my kid's generation is the first generation in Western world, so since about 325 AD, my kids' generation is the first generation that we would call post-Christian. Here's what I mean by that. Because of their parents, like, that'd be like people like me, more of their parents aren't a part of churches than any generation before, and so that means this generation coming up is the first generation that really have no idea who Jesus is. They don't. It's just true. But can I tell you, if we continue to speak a language that we have spoke in a Christian world, they're still going to have no idea who Jesus is. Like the message of God's divine love, that, that's never changing, by the way. But the language we use to articulate that has got to change. So if you think, well, we can't do that because the Bible doesn't say so. Actually, the Bible does tell us to do that. Here's what I mean. In Acts chapter 2, there's a story of Peter preaching to all the people who know the scriptures. He's preaching to a bunch of Jews who would have known the whole Bible. And he begins telling them, you've heard it from the beginning. And he talks about Abraham and he goes all the way through and he says, this prophet Jesus is the one who is the son of God. Died for you and me. And it says about 3,000 came to know him that day. So they went from 120 believers to 3,000 in one day. That's an awesome church service, by the way. It's incredible growth. I don't know what the percentages are, but from 120 to 3120, it's pretty solid. Um, but if you jump just 15 chapters in the book of Acts to Acts chapter 17, just 15 chapters later, so in the early church, in just 15 chapters, which wasn't that long, Paul finds himself in Athens on Mars Hill to a post-Christian, or a really pre-Christian, unchristian world. And he looks around, he sees this altar to an unknown God, and he says, do you see this altar? What if I could tell you who this unknown God is? In fact, what if I could tell you who this unknown God was in such a way that you'd believe he's the only God? 
and all these other stuff, these things you guys see all around, all this other stuff you worship is worthless? What if I began to tell you that you have a unique purpose, that God created you in such a unique way that you're divinely loved by him? What if I spoke a language you understood? See, what Paul understood. If you look at the book of Acts, the, the disciples were really faithful, but the true fruitfulness of the early church came from Paul. Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. The real growth of the church, the growth engine of the church was Paul and his ministry with Barnabas and and Mark and others. That's the real growth engine of the church. It wasn't just being faithful apostles. You can read it yourself if you don't believe me. They did some good stuff. There was some faithful, there was a little bit of fruit. But Paul was the one who led to all kinds of fruitfulness among those who had no idea who God was. So for us, in the 21st century, we have to quit thinking like Peter. Even though Peter's easy, because we understand Peter. And we have to begin thinking like Paul. Who understood the message didn't change from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 17. The message was the same. Just the language that Paul used was radically different than the words of Peter. And can I tell you today that if we don't do that, we'll lose a whole other generation? That's what Barna and other researchers are telling us people who love Jesus and are studying the world around us. We have to learn to speak a new language together. Can I tell you it isn't easy? Do you know why it's not easy? Because we don't know it. You go up in church, you don't know. Like if I begin using words like woke, some of you in this room go like, does that mean like wake up? Right? Like, I mean, I can start using, if we use phrases that people in our world use, we go, oh, well, we don't talk like that. And I'm not saying you have to have a potty mouth. That's not what I'm trying to say. But I'm saying if we don't understand the culture in which we live, how can we ever expect people to know Jesus? Paul understood both who God called him to be and also who people were. And you and I have to do the same. But it's really easy to speak the language we know. And see, when we begin thinking about how do we speak into a new way, that puts us in places where we live in fear. And why do we live in fear? Because we cannot control something. Or we don't know something. Have you noticed how you're afraid of what you don't know? Have you, have you noticed that? I mean, for many of us, as we're prayerfully exploring where we believe God has led Stephen and I and our church leaderships, part of it is we're just afraid because we don't know. What could be? What, what if? What if? What if? I get it. I get it. Believe me, I get it. I can speak for him. I've lost hours of sleep days of sleep, thinking about what if. But what scares me more is what if not. See, I think um, one of the hard things for us is we we like yesterday's model because yesterday's model worked for us. It did. We're all in church because yesterday's model worked. You get that, right? Like, that's true. But yesterday's model probably isn't going to work today or tomorrow. And that's hard because we don't know what that looks like 100%. And so for many of us to think that we can't live out yesterday into the future is kind of devastating. Because tomorrow then is devastating because I don't know. But when we try to control our future or our destiny, we cannot love. In control there is no love. Yesterday was great. 
But I do know that yesterday is probably not bringing people to the Lord tomorrow. To be clear, like I said, the message didn't change from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 17, but the language did. The message of God's desire to redeem and restore and make all things new, that is constant, that is ever-present, that is real, that matters. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is central to the very character and nature of God. That doesn't change. But you know, just a few weeks ago, I mentioned this here a couple weeks ago, but, but the whole world that watched that royal wedding was blown away by the sermon. Why? Because it was centered on this idea of God's divine love. People desperately want to hear a different message from the church. Instead, I think so often the language we speak is one of animosity. So here's what I mean. Um, so I, I, um, I know nothing about like martial arts stuff, but I, I've heard two phrases like, and I don't know, I'm probably mixing this. One of them, either Tai Chi or Kung Fu, I don't know which one, so bear with me. If you actually know, you can inform me. I think it's Tai Chi, but, but there's this idea that you don't, you don't counter someone's aggression with aggression. You deflect it. You redirect that momentum to another place, and then you counter with something different. You redirect. And so one of the things that the church has tried to do is we've tried to be combative. We're going to punch you back. You mess with our values, we're going to punch you back. And can I tell you, it has not worked. It's not. Do you remember that? Stat, I told you about how this is the first generation that's post-Christian. That's why. Combativeness doesn't work. Combativeness does not lead to God's peace, but compassion does. Mercy does. Graciousness does. See, I, I want to ask today, will we prayerfully consider together the idea of crossing the Jordan, taking that one step? And part of that is shifting our language even. I mean, I get it. Why take the risk? Why learn a new language? Why give up what's comfortable and what's known for what's unknown? I, I get that. Believe me, I get it. I probably live risk-averse whether you believe it or not. But why? Here's why. Because the world has heard what God is against. Pretty clearly, they know. They know so well they won't darken the door of a church. But what if, what if the church began to speak a language they understood with a message that they're desperately dying to hear? What if rather than us speaking what God is against, what if we began to speak for what God is for? What if we began to speak a language that says, hey, God's for you, he's for your future, he's for your family, he's for this community, God is for you, because God for so loved the world. I mean, this is who God is. What if that was central to who we are? In fact, there's one of, my, um, one of my now favorite authors, a guy named Bob Goff, and he writes a lot about, about just what does love look like. And so if you haven't read his books, buy them. Love Does and Everybody Always. Um, and so he talks a lot about what love looks like. And so he, he tells stories about how love has led him to skydiving. Love has led him to befriending limo drivers. Love has led him to, to getting to know people on the street. Love has led him to doing, helping people get people adopted. Love has led him to becoming friends with a, a, a medicine man. I mean, like, he has done some crazy stuff. And so he has this quote I want to read to you this morning. He says, I'm not trying to be right anymore. I want to be Jesus. I've concluded we can be correct and not right. You know what I mean? I do this most often when I have right words in the wrong heart. 
Sadly, whenever I make my opinions more important than the difficult people God made, turn the wine back into water. I'm trying to resist the bait that darkness offers me every day to trade kindness for rightness. These are not mutually exclusive ideas, of course, but there's a big difference between being kind and being right. Arguments won't change people. Simply giving away kindness won't either. Only Jesus has the power to change people. And it'll be harder for them to see Jesus if their view of him is blocked by our big opinions. I don't want to get to heaven and have Jesus tell me my big opinions block someone's view of him. I used to think we'd be known for whom we hung around, the groups or social issues we identified with, or the faith tradition we were familiar with. Now I think while we might be known for our opinions, we'll be remembered for our love. What I've learned following Jesus is we only really find our identities by engaging the people we've been avoiding. This morning we're going to take communion together and it's a symbol of the graciousness of God. It's a symbol of the way he loves us. It's an outward symbol of an invisible grace of God that he's present with us. It's this idea that his, his love went all the way even to death for us. So here's kind of my, my challenge for us together today. Can we take a step together? Can we take a step of faith forward in a way that we didn't understand? Just one step. And let's see what God may do. Let's consecrate ourselves and see the incredible things God may do among us. Let's take a step because then maybe in that step we can move from faithfulness to fruitfulness. And if we take that step and we move from faithfulness to fruitfulness, maybe God will help us to learn a new language so that a whole new generation will come to know the Lord who has never known him before. And it's going to happen by our love. Take a step. Move from faithful to fruitful. And let's learn to speak a language of love that the world desperately needs to hear. We pray with me as Stephen comes to lead us in communion. Father, we thank you this morning for the way you continue to be near to us. For the way you come and the way you care and the way you want to change this world. And will you help us this day as we prepare to take these elements of communion that represent your broken body and shed blood, that they would be grace for us and that they would be for us this recognition that every great thing that happened because of a people of faith happened with a, with a step. That seems reckless, that seems crazy. I mean, who steps into a river flowing at flood stage and thinks it's going to stop? I mean, who leaves everything they know because God calls them to and says, Abraham, I'm going to make you a blessing to the world. Who does that? Who says, Moses, will you go back and lead my people out of Egypt? Who says to Paul, if you will go, you are, you've been persecuting me, go and speak a language to the world so that they can know me. Who says to people in 1908 in Pilot Point, Texas, will you start a unique people centered around this idea that I want to make a holy people who love others and I want love to be the central message because I want to restore hearts and minds. And just maybe, just maybe in 2018, God's saying to a couple of unique groups, will you take a step with me? 
So, Father, as we take these elements, may we recognize that you've already taken all the steps to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That's a good word, right? Yeah, praise the Lord for that. Thank you, Pastor Aaron.